Hello, and welcome to Writing the Coast. I'm your host, Megan Cole, and Writing the Coast is the official podcast of the BC and Yukon Book Prizes. On Writing the Coast, you'll hear conversations with the winners and finalists of the annual BC and Yukon Book Prizes, as well as interviews with book lovers from across the province and territory. My guest for this episode is an incredible poet, editor, and all-around inspiration in the BC literary community. Here she is to introduce herself. I'm Fiona Tinwai Lam, and I'm Vancouver's sixth poet laureate. In addition to being the sixth City of Vancouver poet laureate, Fiona has written three poetry collections and a children's book. As you'll hear in our conversation, she's also edited and contributed to many anthologies, including Love Me True, Writers Reflect on the Ins, Outs, Ups, and Downs of Marriage, which she co-edited with Jane Silcott. In our conversation, Fiona also talks about how she's working on poetry videos as part of her Poet Laureate Legacy Project, and her own award-winning poetry videos made in collaboration with others have been screened internationally. In our conversation, we talk about mentorship and how literary friendships can be an important support for writers. We also talk about the City Poems project that she's been working on in her term as Poet Laureate. Here's my conversation with Fiona Teen Y. Lam. If you could only read one book or watch one TV show for the rest of your life, what would it be and why? Um... I haven't been watching very much I've been trying that's because I've been trying not to watch a lot of television for a long time because I, I can get very addicted and then I just binge watch and so forth especially because there's things are streaming and I know my tendency towards addiction of toward anything anything so yeah, I'm one of those people that gets sick of things pretty fast and I jump around a lot so I guess it would have to be a book of poetry. And the, the book that I could keep reading for a long time, if I were in prison or if I were stuck somewhere where I had no other thing to read or watch would be Staying Alive, Real Poems for Unreal Times, edited by Neil Astley and published in 2002 by Blood Axe Books and it's been reprinted many, many, many times, but has wonderful uh, poems in English and uh, translated from other languages into English from around the world that are very plain spoken oftentimes, but very, very powerful. And they talk to the, speak to the human condition, um, mortality, love, hate, death, birth, endings, beginnings, the environment, the art of poetry, war and peace, uh, absences, beasts and creatures, growing up, all those kinds of, of major themes. And if I were stuck with them, uh, with this book, with the, those poems, I would actually try to memorize them. I think that, w- that would help my brain and yeah. my heart at the same time. Yeah. You're the first person to pick an anthology. I'm actually surprised. I've had the complete works of William Shakespeare, but not an anthology. Well, you know, I am the queen of anthologies or maybe the second, you know, princess to the right or something. <laughs> because I have been part 
of um, as a contributor to over 40 anthologies, plus I've co-edited two anthologies and edited an anthology myself. So having been part of these little mini literary parties or communities that have been created by other editors or by myself or in partnership with Jane Silcott or Kathy Stonehouse and Shannon Cohen, it creates a community of voices. And I love the diversity of voices in an anthology and different points of view and different styles. So I thought about, you know, some holy book or, or Shakespeare, but I don't think I'd want to read English from that century <laughs> um, all over and over again. I think there's lots to be found there. And even Shakespeare's built upon his reading lots of different writers and different mythologies and so forth. So with poetry, what's really great about it is that, you know, each of the poets has read hundreds of different poets. Maybe some of them overlap, but they've drawn from that. And then you can draw from that. So because I have this personality, even with food, if I go for food, I don't want a big plate of one thing. I love the buffet where you can go and you can get a little piece of this, and a little piece of that. If you really like it, you can get a second or third piece of this or that. Because sometimes, you know, maybe the tiramisu is really great or maybe it's not so great some days. Or you want to have several different kinds of cheesecake or uh, you want a curry and you want to have scrambled eggs. So um Yes, I'm, I don't know, maybe I have undiagnosed ADHD, but I love to have a taste of everything. I want to cram it all into my mouth and into my mind uh, and experience it all. And sometimes there's a gridlock or a traffic jam, but, you know, eventually some things come through. But it's that diversity um, of, of everything. I, I'll maybe maybe I, I love being overloaded. Uh, I, I don't think so in terms of work, but uh, and I often am, but... Uh, I find that when I'm doing my own writing, I, I don't really want to get hung up on one author because then I'll sound like that author. And when I, I have different voices, I find it's just more stimulating and more interesting. Yeah. We'll come back to uh, community and uh, anthologies because that was one of the things I wanted to chat with you about. But maybe we could start with uh, you being did you say it was the sixth Vancouver Poet Laureate? Yes, number six. Number six. So for those who don't know what a Poet Laureate is, could you describe what your role is? Sure. Poets Laureate are very different according to the jurisdiction they come from. The idea of a Laureate, of course, comes from the laurel tree and the symbolism of the laurel tree comes from the ancient Greek myth of Apollo, who was pursuing or stalking, if you prefer, <laughs> Daphne, uh, who is a naiad nymph, who was not interested in him at all, despite him being this handsome god of music and archery and all kinds of other things. Uh, she wanted to hang out in the forest by herself and not be with him, but he caught up to her eventually and in order to escape his clutches, she asked her father to help, who was the river god Peneus. He turned in, her into a laurel tree. Apollo was foiled, but he vowed he would al always honor this tree and he would wear a crown of laurel leaves, which never wilt. 
or turn brown around his head. And so the idea was that to honor a great athlete, a victor, a poet, someone who'd done something great, they would get a crown of laurel leaves. And you still see those laurels, for example, for films that have won this award or been selected for the Sundance Festival and, and that sort of thing. So to revive that ancient Greek myth and practice, the uh, small city-states of Italy um, in the Renaissance period, they had a poet's laureate, and that was taken up in England, where they would have the royal poet laureate funded by the king or queen to mostly write poems for special events, royal events like coronations and births and deaths and so forth. And then around the world, uh, whether it's the government or it's a library or a literary association, parliament, whatever, they might decide that they need a poet laureate to write occasional poems, poems for occasions, or to engage the public in poetry in some way. So we've had a federal poet laureate for a long time, well, not that long, about 2000 or two, 2002 or so, and the first federal Canadian poet laureate appointed by the Library of Parliament was George Bowering, a BC poet, and the first Vancouver poet laureate was in 2006, George McWhorter at UBC. And the Vancouver poet laureate, it has a different mission and a different kind of funding um, set up than others. Some have city councils fund them, but Vancouver's is funded privately by Dr. Josef Wask through the Vancouver Foundation with the Vancouver Public Library, the Vancouver Writers' Fest, and Vancouver City Hall's Cultural Services all overseeing the position. Um, not that they fund it at all, but they might provide facilities or uh, a chance to read or present uh, now and then. But with Vancouver, it's very much project-based. So every person who puts in an application and is nominated for the position um, and competes for the position um, is considered by the jury in terms of their legacy project. And my legacy project is different from anybody else's le legacy project. For example, George McWhorter and Rachel Rose both wanted to do an anthology. So they did an anthology of poems by various people on certain themes. Evelyn Lau, uh, she did a writer-in-residence kind of stint at the library once a month to consult with the public. Um, Brad Cran, who was the second poet laureate, he had a conference, international conference of poets who came in during um, the 125th anniversary of, of Vancouver. So, I mean, the next poets laureate can propose all kinds of different projects. Um, I think mine was a bit different because I decided to propose a contest, uh, the City Poems Contest, which would have two stages. And the first stage uh, is a print poetry contest based on historical, cultural, and e ecological sites within Vancouver, which I held in the first six months of my tenure, January to June of this year, because I started in January. And the second stage is to have a video poetry contest based on the shortlisted poems selected by the jury 
uh, from stage one. So there are 27 shortlisted poems by youth, meaning high school and younger, by emerging poets who haven't published a book of poetry yet, and by established poets. And I'm working with film students, animation students, digital media students um, in sp specific classes to generate those uh, video poems. And there'll be a contest for that. And there'll be a screening for that in June of 2023 uh, at the Museum of Vancouver. I think there are plenty of very strong, excellent poets in the city, uh, each of whom could be a superb poet laureate and could bring something really interesting to the position. So it's hard to feel that my project actually um, is worthy, but I'm realizing as I go along that there is a role for my project and many more projects. And after my stint is over, there'll be a chance for other projects to come forward. I've been happy uh, so far that I've been able to interact with people as poet laureate. I, most people don't know what a poet laureate is, but for those who do, it has opened some doors and allowed me to participate in different ways that I never would have expected to. For example, I got a chance to read poems at the Chan Center for the Bach Festival. Um, I got a chance to run a dog poetry workshop at the Canine Library event at Trout Lake. Why was the City Poems the project you wanted to bring to the role? Well, I came into this role with the pandemic having created so much isolation and alienation, people very cooped up and unhappy. And I really wanted to do something that would stimulate public engagement, not only the wonderful small poetry community that we have in BC, but also get kids, youth, and people who might dabble in poetry or maybe who've never written poems before to try their hand at writing poems, especially since we've been kind of stuck in the city, wandering around the parks and buildings and so forth. So it's, since we've been around the city a lot and immersed in the city, I thought this is a great time to utilize that knowledge and experience and familiarity of the city and turn it around from something of where we're imprisoned and trapped by the city into something where we can create uh, something interesting with words into poems and make it fun. So that was the big push was to try to get the public involved. And I thought there's nothing like that competitive spirit and even a small cash prize will be something and getting in the honors and, and so forth. So that was one part of it. And the other part of it with the poetry videos is that I think with the poetry world being as it is and the state of poetry, there's a need to bridge this chasm between the poetry world and the non-poetry world. And one way of doing that is through um, poetry videos because a poetry video maybe is 
anywhere from one minute, could be actually less than one minute, one minute to, to five minutes. It's visual, it can be seen on the phone or your iPad or your computer. And if you don't feel like sitting down with a book, um, you can have a taste of one poem within that short period of time. If you don't like it, get stop it and go to the next one. It can be shown on different venues. The poets can show it on their websites or share it with their family and friends. The filmmakers or animators can show it with their friends and family. Um, it just makes it more accessible. And for me, accessibility is, is a really important value. Yeah. Um, when I emailed you for uh, a writing prompt for the Federation of BC Writers, you had mentioned how writing about place has kind of come up for you lately, that more and more you've noticed uh, places were woven into your work. And I wondered how, uh, why writing about place is so interesting for you and, and how that's evolved in your work and also by stepping into this role as the Poet Laureate. Well, I've realized how much uh, we rely on community and how the spaces shape us. I grew up in Vancouver. Uh, I've been here since I was four years old and lived in different neighborhoods. And when I look back on my writing, I see, oh my goodness, you know, I wrote about this home and this bedroom and this kitchen and this basement or this street, this neighborhood, this park. And I was kind of uh, not aware of it until I actually went to flip through. I had to do a lecture on um, place-based writing. I thought, oh my goodness, I thought I had nothing to say, but actually I have a few things to say about how the, pl that the place, the site-based work really influenced the structure and content of um, the writing, whether it was prose or poetry. And even when I've brought place as a theme or subject matter for my classes, it can bring forth really interesting work because with any particular place, there are memories of course, but there are sensory uh, elements of smell and taste and sound, color, um, people's faces, dialogue, interactions of various source, sorts. And so it's a really rich place uh, to draw upon for, for writing. Yeah. Um so I want to go back to uh, the the anthologies and the community building, um, but also about mentorship, because I know that you worked with uh, Henry on, on his book. And and what is it that, that you're drawn to when it comes to working with other writers on that mentorship role? Well, I, I've worked with 10 for 10 years. I worked for 10 years with Henry Doyle who is a downtown Eastside writer who works as a janitor um, right now. He used to work in construction as well. And what really struck me about his work, of course, was his evocations of the downtown Eastside. I thought they were amazing, very powerful, very vivid, evocative, and needed to be heard. And not all of his poems are place-based, I would say, but many of them are. And the way he evokes place and characters is really unique and very impactful. So working with him was not easy for a variety of reasons uh, with literacy and computer literacy issues, but I think he had a story to tell and that story needed to be heard. So 
I was willing to work with him as much as he was keen to work with me. Um, he met me halfway there and he was open to getting feedback. And not everyone, of course, is open to receiving feedback because he was so willing to learn and try and he was willing to listen and I was willing to listen to him too. I was really paying attention to the cadence of his voice and the style of his expression and what he was trying to convey. So there was kind of a Star Trekian mind meld thing happening um, pretty early. Like I, I, I sort of got him and because uh, his style is very plain spoken. My style is also fairly plain spoken and, and direct. So I wasn't going to try to dress him up to be something he wasn't. And, uh, and when I ever ventured on the wrong path with a word or style of expression that wasn't in his voice, it came through right away and we just have to tweak it and switch it back to something that was more natural for him. But I think the mentorship situation, it, it can be challenging to set boundaries. So having clear boundaries early on is good. But having mutual respect and mutual recognition for each other's talents and abilities is really, really key as well. And I don't, he's the only one I've mentored for that long. Most of my mentorships have been not of that kind and not of that depth. Some writers just need sort of a cheerleading, keep going, keep going. That's great, wonderful, or apply here, or try that contest. It's a very, very light hand and it might be ephemeral. It might be just for a year or even for a month or two, where, whether, whereas others might need more because they have other barriers that they're experiencing. But I think um, in the downtown east side, there's sort of a, a sense of community as mentor too, that there are many, many different people and places willing to support writers, uh, whether it's the Carnegie Center, um, writing groups there, um, different kinds of programs like uh, Humanities 101, now called HUM 101, that has uh, downtown east side uh, students go out to uh, UBC for lectures by UBC professors. So there's all kinds of wonderful programs like Megaphone as well to help writers who want to get published. And I think it's actually best not to rely on one person or one program. It's great to have many different places to turn to, to keep uh, and sustain that writing practice. Yeah. Are there, are there mentors that have been significant in, in getting you to where you are in your career? It's interesting. I did a, a panel on mentorship um, for the downtown east sides, heart of the city festival. And in preparing my speech, I was looking at answering that specific question. And I would say that I didn't actually have a mentor until my mid to late thirties. And even that would be a very loosely defined mentor. I feel that when I was at the UBC uh, MFA in creative writing program, there were instructors who were encouraging um, and would say, keep going, Fiona, that's great. 
but there weren't that many who in my life so far, which has been quite a life, uh, that have actually given me a lot of nuts and bolts unless I hired them as an editor. So when I've hired editors, um, they've done the work and it's kind of more of a narrow focus on particular poems. So that could be because I don't necessarily need a mentor or maybe I'm so curmudgeonly that <laughs> it's really hard to mentor me. Um, but I think how I've been raised and how I was in school is there were teachers I would approach now and then and I'd show a poem and they'd go, great, or I don't understand that or something like that. Um, and that would be about it. So I basically had to figure it out myself but I've known who to ask when I've needed an editor. I've not known who to approach as an editor to work on defined projects. And I'd say over the past two poetry collections, I've worked with Anne Simpson, um, who's a wonderful poet in the Maritimes. And she's been, I'd say, most like a mentor to me and given me not only editorial feedback, but sort of nudged me to try to make space for writing when I've been overwhelmed with other tasks. And, um, but she isn't, uh, I wouldn't say she's a coach. I wouldn't say she's uh, a person who gives me deadlines or uh, prompts or that kind of thing. Um, I guess there are different kinds of mentors and, uh, and everyone needs a different kind of mentorship at a different time. Yeah. I was thinking that in some, in some cases, I think for myself, like I, I've been lucky to have mentors, but I also, um, I think I've also found a community of writers that in a way supplies some of the same things, uh, yeah. and, and, um, you know, and having friends who are writers in different stages of their careers, also it's it provides those things that sometimes I think we search for in mentorship too. And I know you have a community of writers as well, so maybe that fills that role sometimes. I've had some really good friends, uh, peers, like Susan Olding, uh, Jane Hamilton Silcott, uh, Loretto Sito, who are sort of more just good friends, good peers. So I felt that they've been been writing for a while, they understand the ropes, and we can exchange ideas and get feedback from each other. Um, and that's what I guess I've been most comfortable with. I guess I, I don't like hierarchies very much. I distrust them. I've had some unpleasant experience where, where there's been hierarchy, which I've not felt uh, worked very well. So when there's a, um, a feeling of equality where you feel like there's real reciprocation, um, that's where I think I feel most comfortable and I've benefited most. Yeah. Um, why do you think you're drawn to working on anthologies? I wanted to come back to anthologies. Sure. <laughs> Partly my desire to 
encourage other writers and give them a place to be heard and seen. When you put together an, an anthology on a particular theme, it's, it is like a, a bit of a party. Like you all care about this thing and you all want to write about this thing um, in some way. And you're bringing together these voices and they are together more than the sum of their parts. So I think of Yvonne Blomer's three anthologies and uh, they've been, well, maybe this is two anthologies, Refugium and Sweetwater on the theme of the Pacific Ocean and then the watersheds. And I've loved being in a book with all these other poets, some of them I've never heard of and reading them and then really liking them and wanting to meet them um, and enjoying their work and knowing that they care about something that I care about. So it, it creates community and celebrates community, um, plus examines issues like uh, the watershed uh, Pacific Ocean uh, in a way that deserves that kind of focused attention. Uh, Christine Lowther did a wonderful anthology that I'm also one of the contributors to, um, uh, Worth More Standing about trees. And I mean, she was inundated with a thousand more poems about trees. So she had to do a second anthology for, for youth. But uh, it's great to think that all these folks care about trees and, and want to write poems and, and recite poems about them. So uh, it's the bringing together of the voices and then hearing the differences while there's still this sort of common ground that, that's very cool. And there's a part of me that's a writer, but there's another part of me that's an editor and likes helping other writers and also honing their work to be the best it can be. So it brings in a number of different skills. And also it's a bit of a maybe procrastination too. <laughs> <laughs> you're, you're still working, but not really working on your own writing, right? <laughs> That's right. I mean, rather than me writing a whole book about trees or a whole book of poems about trees all by myself, um, or in this case, uh, you know, with the city poems, I do plan actually because of the city poems project, that is my legacy project, it actually has inspired me to want to write more poems about things that people didn't write about in the city. So uh, there is this lovely way of sort of filling in the gaps there. Yeah. I was going to ask you what's inspiring the work you're doing these days, but you've, you've just kind of alluded to it. <laughs> yes. Um, seeing all these poems about parks and places in the city, it's made me want to dig deep. I mean, there's only six months of the contest that was, so people didn't have a lot of time and maybe people, people didn't know about the contest, but it gave me a chance to explore the city myself through heritage walks and, and the like. And there are poems I was hoping would be written about certain places, but they didn't dig into the history in the same way that I may have wanted. So it's led to me wanting to know more. For example, um, Hastings Park, a uh, lot of history there, um, 8,000 Japanese Canadians were interned there, brought in from all over the province and held there for up to six months before being carted out to internment camps and work camps uh, during the Second World War. And I wanted to try to write more about that because folks' families were sitting there listening to people in Playland while they were having terrible food and 
living in terrible quarters uh, for all that time. So I'm hoping to, to write about that. I'd like to write about all the public art in the city as well. I was hoping for more public art poems and there weren't, and I've started doing that. And the other thing that I've wanted to write about is an address is uh, this imposter syndrome that I have uh, plaguing me since I, even before I started this position and to address being a Chinese Canadian in Vancouver and feeling at times that I didn't belong and that my belonging was provisional. So I'm hoping to write some more prose uh, to explore some of those feelings. I'm looking forward to all of that. <laughs> <laughs> I am too, if I can actually make the space to write about it. Yes. Oh, yeah. Well, I, maybe maybe this is the percolation time. And once things settle after after your time as the Poet Laureate, you'll be able to work on all those things. Well, I'm sure, Megan, you feel the same way. Like there's a lot of things percolating, but there's a, a point where it's, percolation is, is that period is over and it's time to actually pour the coffee. Yeah. <laughs> the percolation can very quickly become procrastination. <laughs> yes, yes, exactly. That was my conversation with Fiona Teen Wylam. Fiona is the City of Vancouver's sixth Poet Laureate. If you would like to find out more about the BC and Yukon Book Prizes, visit our website at bcyukonbookprizes.com. You can also find us on social media, on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook. Next time on Writing the Coast, I talked to Angela Ahn, author of Peter Lee's Notes from the Field, which was a finalist for the 2022 Sheila A. Egoff Children's Literature Prize. Thanks for listening to Writing the Coast.